Okay, on this episode of Fight Talk, we have a very, very special guest. Mm. Two-time British champion, European champion, two-time European contender, three-time world champion, has made multiple uh, world title defences, and he's a gooner. It's Duke So we will just speak about your, your humble beginnings, Duke. Yeah, listen, thanks for the introduction. I really appreciate it. Appreciate but um, like I say, I've, I've had so many um, so many great people in my life. I can, only, I can only really describe them as being great because they only had my best interests at heart. And when I was in the gym, when I say there was an abundance of talent, there was guys in the gym that were better than me, I promise you. And I've trained in a lot of gyms in my, over, over the years in my time. A lot of guys had a lot more natural ability than I did, but they couldn't take that natural ability to the big stage. Do you see what I mean? They'd get lost somewhere psychologically in their own minds. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, like I say, I'd spar many, many guys, many guys, and get beat up. You know, when I was younger, coming through, learning my trade, it was a regular occurrence. But you can't, you sort of take your licks you never got battered, not not really, you know, punched to a standstill or knocked out or really, really hurt, but you always knew who the boss was. Mm-hmm. But I learned so much from so many different people, different styles, different nationalities, you know, and you just, just I was like a sponge, I used to soak it all up. I used to eat, sleep, drink, walk, talk, boxing. The only thing I did, I tried not to do was try not to look it too much, do you see what I mean? There's yeah. nothing macho about me, I never like getting hit. So, um, like I say, all of my brothers were my inspirations. Clinton, my oldest brother, Winston, my other brother, and Dudley. I've got another two brothers who didn't box. I've got a sister, obviously, who didn't box, but my sister's like a black belt in karate. So if you can imagine in the 70s, late 70s, my, I couldn't even beat my sister up. It was embarrassing. You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, all my brothers done, they laid the blueprint for me to follow. Because like I say, Clinton was an England international, uh, went to the European Championships, went to the 76 Olympic Games. Sugar Ray Leonard, my brother Winston was also a national British um, amateur champion. Dudley was an all-time England, all England national champion. Dudley won everything. And out of the four of us, Dudley was the one who you really expected to be, you know, people talk about special and gifted. Yeah. You know, that's not an understatement for my brother Dudley. Dudley was just sensational. But um, he never quite cut it in the, in, in the pro game. But I put that down to bad management, nothing else. Yeah, bad management can really, you know, can affect your career. You need, like you were saying earlier, you had a good team around you and that helps you, you know, push on. And see, my manager, Mickey Duff, unbeknownst to quite a lot of people, um, when I first asked him to manage me, he wouldn't have it. He wasn't interested in managing me. And I became like um, I became like a stalker. I didn't even know what I was doing because I had nothing on my hands except time. I was unemployed. I was nineteen. I was broke. I lived in a in a in a two bedroom flat. Me and me and Dudley just right away from home. We lived in a two bedroom flat in Brixton, and um, Dudley put me in a position where I could meet Mickey Duff because Dudley was up there. Do you see what I mean? Riding high. Winning ABA titles, winning Duke scoreboy titles, winning NABC titles, fighting at the Albert Hall. Do you see what I mean? Everybody wanted to sign Dudley, but and then Dudley sort of introduced me to different people. And then one day he went to me. He said to me, "See that bloke over there pointing through the crowd?" He said to me, "That's Mickey Duff." And I'd never heard of Mickey Duff at this point. And there was one or two other people that had mentioned Mickey Duff's name to me, but I didn't know who he was. 
Yeah. And Dudley went to me, go and ask him to manage you, just like that, as, as flippant as that. So, like I said, I'm 19 at the time, and I don't I don't really know anything about anything, who he is, what he is. All I knew was I wanted to talk to him because he was like, um, Mickey Duff had this larger-than-life personality. So anyway, I got up to him and I pulled his coat and I literally said to him, Mickey Duff, he said to me, yeah? He said, what do you want, lad? And I said, um, I, said I want you to manage me. He said to me, see, I just saw you fight. Now, he thought he was talking to Dudley this time. He said to me, yeah, tre- tremendous fight. Yeah, I said, I said, no, I said, that wasn't me. I said, that was my brother. He said to me, well, what have you won? I said, I haven't won anything, but I said, I want you to manage me. And he just, he, he literally just buoyed me off. He just, he turned around and he pretty much ignored me. Oh, so wow. I walked around to the, yeah, I walked around the other side to where he was and I made eye contact with him again. <laughs> and then I was like, I was sort of mimicking it to him this time. I'm saying to him, like, manage me like this. And then uh, he, he ignored me again. So I went back and told my brother Dudley. Dudley went, right, right we'll, get his, we'll get his phone number. We'll put an appointment on at his office and we'll go and see him. Now, if you can imagine, this is, um, it's like the summertime, right? And um, it's a hot summer's afternoon, pretty much. So my brother Clinton gave me the bus, gave me the bus and the train fare to get up to my brother's, get up to Mickey Duff's office. And for me, it was like a day out. I'm going to the West End of London. I'd never been past Croydon before. So I got a bus to Brixton because Dudley had it all mapped out for me to get a bus. To, no, no, sorry. We was actually living in Brixton at this time. So I got, a, I got, um, I walked to the, to the tube station, Brixton tube station, got the tube from Brixton to Piccadilly Circus, got out of Piccadilly Circus and I walked the rest because he lived, he, he worked in Mickey Duff's offices were in Wardour Street in the West End. They're, no, they're no longer there anymore. There's, there's roads, they're still there, obviously, but they're no longer his offices anymore because he sadly passed away and National Promotions has, has closed down. But for me to go to the West End on any day, like I say, for me, it was a proper outing. Like I put my best jeans on, I'd had my bath, I'd had a shave. I'm going to the West End. I, I really thought I'd made it. And bearing in mind, I hadn't signed a contract with Mickey Duff at this time. So I went to his office, and when I got there, because I'd made an appointment to see him, but he wasn't there. And then I, um, I met all of his staff, like his secretary, this lovely lady called Eileen, and another lady called Jill and Val. They were his three sort of secretaries, but Eileen was the real sort of, she was the main one, and she loved me. She was she was fantastic. She, I think she felt sorry for me, to be honest with you. Because every time I got there, she'd say to me, I'll make you a cup of tea. Sit down, Mickey, you'll be here in a minute. But he never came. And I used to, when you walked into Mickey Duff's office, before you got to his office, it was like a little alcove area with like a bench. And I used to sit outside this bench, on this bench, waiting for him to come like a laptop. I'd sit there waiting for him four, five, six, seven, eight hours sometimes. And he never showed up. Yeah. But I never got bored because I'd always talk to the backroom staff, people like Archie Kessler, um, Davy Jones, Eileen was always there, Val was there, Jill was there. And they'd always talk to me and just make me feel welcome. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And before I knew it, I became... Um, very comfortable in their sort of company. Sometimes I just, just used to go up there to see them. I knew Mickey weren't going to be there, but I just go and see him because I, I wasn't working. I had nothing else to do. I was interested in looking for a job at that time. I just wanted to be a, a professional boxer. And um, I'd go up there. I'm not joking. I'd say some days I'd sit up there all day waiting for Mickey Duff. And Eileen would say to me, Do, you know, Mickey can't make it. She'd always make an apology for him. And I, and I didn't, didn't bother me because I'd go back the next day like it was the first time I'd ever been there. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I'd wait for him. And one day, he, just, he kind of just appeared. Like, um, the only way I can describe it, do you remember, you remember, you might be a little bit younger for this, but remember a program called Kojak? 
No, I don't. Nah, sorry, I know you'd be a bit young. Right, so anyway, this has been this program called Kojak about with this with this American cop, right? And he had this long sort of trench coat on. But Kojak was like, he was like the don. When he walked into the room, everybody listened and everybody had to stand up and take notice. When Mickey Duff appeared at the door, I was just like, I was in awe. I was like, wow, that's Mickey Duff. <laughs> I hadn't signed a contract at this time or anything, right? So um, he shook my hand. And I explained to him what I, what, I, what, I, what I wanted. He said to me, pretty much, what do you want? I said, well, I want you to manage me kind of thing. And he didn't say yes, but he didn't say no. Do you see what I mean? He didn't say, yeah, I'll manage you. But he didn't say, no, go away. He just sort of, we just talked, really. And after about 10, 15, 20 minutes, um, it, Arlene would make him a cup of tea. And he'd go into his office and he'd be in there doing his business. Now, I'm still sitting outside in this little alcove bit waiting for him to make another appearance, do you see what I mean? Or to at least give me some direction of what was happening. But he never did. And this went on, this went on for about, this went on for months. I'm telling you, this went on for months. I, I didn't go down there every day, but I'd go down there, do you know, and when I wasn't going down, I'd be ringing him up to the point where I'm sure he, he didn't want to answer his phone because he knew it would be me. I half terrorised him, I think. Then, um, then one day, um, he had arranged some sparring for me um, at a very famous gym, which is closed down now, called the Thomas Beckett, um, with the British champion at my way, a guy called Kelvin Smart. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never, I'd never sparred with a professional in my life. And this is where my luck changed. This is, how, this is why I believe in luck, good fortune, good fortune and fate. Because before I'd seen Mickey Duff, I'd seen every other promoter and manager in the country, and none of them would give me not even an interview, never mind sign me up or was interested in signing me because back then it was very fashionable to be an ABA champion to get signed off the back of that. You had to have won something. I never won an egg cup, do you see what I mean? So uh, anyway, Mickey said to me, take these gloves down the Thomas and Becker, Kelvin Sparks Bar, and then you can have a little move around with him. Do you see what I mean? So I did. And so I went down to Beckett and um, I was training and then um, I spar him. I, they said, come and do it. You can have a few rounds with Kelvin Smart. He's winding down because he had a British title fight coming up. Yeah. So when I got in, I swear to God, I was shitting myself. I and this guy, little guy from, yeah, this little guy from, little guy from Wales, he, he literally, he, he come flying at me and I shut my eyes. No word of a lie. I threw a shot. I don't even know what shot it was. Might have been a left hook, might have been a right hand. I don't know. And he walked onto it, bang. And I, I think I shattered his nose or broke his nose. I did something, but I couldn't have done it again if it was it was a total fluke. Within the space of about half an hour, word had got back to Mickey Duff. It was a phone call. They went, dude, there's a phone call for you. It's Mickey Duff. And I thought, I'm in trouble now because this guy's got a British title fight coming up. Now he's going to have to pull out of the fight. They said, dude, it's Mickey Duff. And I, so I went, Mick, I said, I said to him, I said, Mick, I said, what do you want? So I'm in with this bar and he went to me, dude, he said, come to my office. And I know I'm thinking, I'm in big trouble. I got to his office. Was, he, there was a contract on the table. He said, sign it. And for the minute I signed it, this I'm telling you, from the minute I signed it, I never looked back. And bearing in mind, I'd never been out of the country at this time. So three weeks later, he called me up. He said to me, because I never heard nothing. He called me up. He said to me, dude. He said to me, there's a ticket at Heathrow Airport. He said, your next fight's in Vegas. He said, he said I'll see you over there. And that was it. That was the beginning of my real journey uh, with Mickey Duff traveling the world. Mickey took me, he took me everywhere. He took me, when I say everywhere, I mean he took me all over the world. He boxed in Vegas, Los Angeles, Reno, Atlantic City, um, New York. Then we come back and we boxed on the continent. Um, we boxed in, in, in Italy. 
And back back then, fighting in Italy, um, you couldn't get a draw over there unless 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 you actually, you know, knocked the guy out and stood on top of him and then got your coach to stand on top of him. It was just they used to get robbed blind in Italy. But um Mickey Duff took me on this um whistle stop tour of of of, of the world. And he looked after me, he nurtured me, and listen, he made money off me, no doubt. But the thing is, is that he put me in a position where he always, it's, it'd say to me, you'll never be in a fight that I don't think you can win, right? So this, is, this goes back from my preliminary fights, six, eight round fights, to 10 round fights, international fights. European title fights, European defences. Even when I went abroad, as I just tried to explain to you, I went to I went abroad um, to defend my European title against a guy called um, Giampiero Pinna. And I'm not kidding; it's a it was a real hostile environment. And one of the judges, I think, sorry, two of the judges. Although I well I well won the fight, I promise you. But two of the judges gave the fight a draw. Do you see what I mean? Sorry, excuse me, it's my daughter. I've just got to just tell her I can't talk right now. Yeah, two, two of the judges gave the fight every round a draw. So that's unheard of. You knew the, the fix was in. You know they were trying to take my title because I was the defending champion. So, but the other judge made me win. So um, I've had, like I say, I had, I had preliminary fights. Oh, do you know what? I've got, to just take, I've got to just go back a little bit now. There was a fight I had, which I clearly lost. I think it was about my fifth or sixth professional fight. I was in um, Los Angeles and I boxed at a place called the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. And um, years prior to this, I'm just trying to give you some kind of a description of what the, what the, what the arena was like. Years prior to this, there was a very famous box called Johnny Owen. Uh, they called him the matchstick, the matchstick man. Um, he boxed a guy called Lupe Pintor, who's got to be one of the greatest bantamweights that's ever lived. But sadly, um, um, Johnny Owen lost his life in that fight. But this place was like a proper. It was like it was like a it was like a snake pit. It was just full of like as you would expect, just you know, guys from East LA, you know, Mexico. Nobody spoke English. Everybody spoke Spanish over there. Do you see what I mean? Anyway, I boxed this guy called David Capo. And um, the first two rounds, I come out and I'm alive and I'm giving it to him and everything's great. And in the third round, he goes, Bink! and he hurt me. And from that moment on, I run like a thief in the night. I promise you, because the chips were down and I just wanted to survive. But at the end of the, at the, end of the fight, it was, um, it was scheduled for eight. I think it was scheduled for eight. But during the fight, somehow Mickey Duff got it cut down to a six-round fight. During the fight. <laughs> this guy punched me never I listen Mickey that was a miracle worker this guy punched me from pillar to post right I promise you for four rounds and how at the end of the fight you know I expected the referee to raise his hand the referee's raised my hand like this and I'm like what are you doing quite clearly I've lost and then there was like a near enough there was like a riot because the crowd was just they they were throwing things one guy got into the ring and he jumped in the ring and he smacked Mickey Duff in the mouth and it all kicked off it was just, um, I'm telling you, it was an unbelievable experience. You know, I've had some great times with Mickey Duff and um, I don't think there's ever been, there's never been one like him and there'll never be another one like him. As a, as a matchmaker, Mickey Duff, I promise you, if you were to turn professional yeah. with Mickey Duff, he would, have made, he would have made you a world champion. I guarantee it. He, he, he knew me 
he knew me better physically than I knew myself. He knew what month, for, what what day of the month I'd fight good at, what weight I'd fight, I would fight best at, what arena I'd fight good in. If I was good under pressure, he knew if I, if I, if I could cope against a, um, a pressure fighter or a boxer, do you see what I mean? That's what matchmaking is all about. That's some of the attributes that he had. But he was, he was just, he was, he was brilliant. So when I, um, when I boxed a guy called Danny Finn for the British title, mm-hmm. coming into the fight, all I really wanted to do at that point was to emulate my older brother Clinton, who was already British champion. And I'd never seen a Lonsdale belt until my brother had had one. I'd never held one until he, until he, he won one. And I kept saying to myself, I've got a win. And Dudley kept saying to me, because Dudley used to fill me through so much confidence. Dudley was like, um, Dudley was like my conscience. If Dudley would have told me I could have beaten Mike Tyson, I'd have believed him. If Dudley told me I couldn't have done it, I just, I totally believed him. I had that much confidence in him. But Dudley used to call me little man. He said to me, little man, he said to me, we got this. He said, there's nothing this guy can do that you ain't seen before. Now, bearing in mind, I've been to America. I'd come back. You know, because I used to go over there for training camps and one thing and another, because another good friend of mine was a guy called Cornelius Bozer Edwards, who was Mickey Duff's first world champion. And Mickey Duff used to let me spend a lot of time with, with Bozer in the early days of my career. Um, when Bozer boxed um, Hector Camacho, uh, to, he, when he challenged Hector Camacho for the WBC lightweight world championship um, in Miami, in a car park in Miami, I was in the, I was in the corner. I was in Bozo's corner. I was like the bucket boy. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I've had some I've had some amazing experiences. I've had some amazing experiences. I mean, fighters go to America now, like an Amir Khan or a Ricky Hatton or whatever. You know, they go to like an MGM or they go to like Caesars or whatever or MG. You know, MGM as I just said. You know, and um, I've done all that. I'm, and I'm you know I've been really really lucky to have been privileged to have seen all of that. So when I look at those guys now, I can't I don't get too excited. Do you know what I mean? Because I've experienced it. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, though, not as a world champion. Their pressure was different to mine because they've gone over there either as a world champion or to challenge for a world title. This, I was over there in preliminary stages of my career. However, the experience is very similar. Do you see what I mean? you still got to get ready. you still got to get prepared. You're still on television. Do you see what I mean? You still want to win. So, um, But, yeah, I, you know, I've had some... Um, some really outstanding experiences. And so when, when I'm ready to fight for the British title against this guy called Danny Flynn, going into the fight, I was very, I was quietly confident because of my preparation. Not only, not only physically, but my mental prep was just so bang on because like I say, Dudley was like my conscience. So Dudley would just get me ready in here. My coach did his job physically, getting me ready, you know, tactics and all the rest of it. And having Mickey Duff in my corner, now I've got, I've got status and I've got stature because of who he is, do you see what I mean? So now I'm ready to rock and roll. And um, I think the reality is with the Danny Finn fight for him also is that he made the fight bigger than what it was because he'd obviously seen and heard about me and what I was doing in America and it was always in the boxing news and one thing or another and now he's actually facing off fighting me and um, yeah, he didn't make it. You know, the fight was over after five rounds but I was prepared for a 12-round fight. Do you see what I mean? I was prepared for 12 rounds. But and I know how to pace myself. And every fight's an experience. Every fight is like um, every fight I ever had. It was always like the first fight. It was always like the first time because you learn. I always used to try and take something from from one fight to the next to the next. And if you look at my career, even the fights that I lost in my career, for whatever the reason, 
like I say, because I'm not, I'm not showy, I'm not big-headed, I'm not cocky, I'm not one of them kind of guys. I've always had my feet pretty much on the ground. I've always looked at every loss as a learning curve. It's always been a lesson. It's not, oh, you know what, I've lost this fight. You know, I've always said to myself, well, Daddy would say to me, well, what have you learned from it? How do we correct that? How, how, do we, how do we move on from that? What do we learn from that fight? What do we take from that fight to the next fight so it don't happen again? Do you see what I mean? So I just used to, I used to go away, lick my wounds. I never cried. I never cried when I lost in fights. Ever. I lost seven, but I never, ever shed a tear when I lost. My problem was winning. When I was winning, this is why my brother was so important to me as more than my brother. is my confidence. He was my, my brother. He was my best friend. Everything that you would want in one person, my brother gave me that. Do you see what I mean? So Dudley would always calm me down after fights because he'd always say, you've got to be in control of your emotions because you become very emotional um, before a fight and after a fight because you've got the high of peaking and then you've got the low of plummeting. You see, when you've won, it's like the, rug, the rug's been pulled under your feet because it's like an anti-climax in some ways. You train for months, for weeks at a time for that pinnacle to get really fit, really strong, technically sound, fill yourself with confidence. Then if everything goes to plan and the fight's won, what else is there? Do you see what I mean? That's why I feel sorry for some boxers after their careers because that's the question they ask themselves. What else is there? Can you imagine being Frank Bruno? You're the heavyweight champion of the world. And you've won a heavyweight championship in the world. And now you're saying to yourself, well, what is that? Do you see what I mean? I've had the money. I've had the fame. Do you see what I mean? I've been on the TV. I've, I've had all the trappings of wealth. What else is there? So you've got to be happy in who you are and what you are. And like I said, I'd like to think I'm a little bit of a realist. And I live in a little small bedroom, three bedroom house. Um, I've got a dog that I love. <laughs> I've got a lovely wife. Do you see what I mean? I've got three kids. Um, I'm very, you know, as you've said, you know, I've got all of these, all of these fantastic things that have happened in my life, but ultimately I'm a realist and I know the things that really matter to me and the, the things that really matter to me and the things that are always going to sustain me are the things I've just mentioned. Do you see what I mean? Do you think being a realist helped you be a, a better boxer? You know, when you're maybe in a situation where this guy maybe, I don't know, this guy might have a better engine than you, which they wouldn't because your engine was awesome. But say there was something, you being real about this situation was made you easier to adapt to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, part of Dudley's... Dudley would always say to me, you know, you got to adapt or you get destroyed. It's as simple as that. You've got to adapt to your surroundings and who you're fighting at any given time or you'll get destroyed. So I win my first 10 fights. Uh, I'm British champion. Then in my 13th fight... I boxed for the European side against a guy called Charlie Magri. Oh, now Magri just come off, yeah, Magri just come off the back of his uh, losing his his world title to Elessonio Mercedes from the Dominican Republic. Fantastic little fighter, but but Magri wasn't finished yet because Magri then went to Italy to regain the European title from I think it was Franco Cherky, who was a good little fighter. But Mag Magri went over and smashed him to pieces in two or three rounds because Charlie was still a force, at least on European level. He might not have been a force at world level, but certainly on the, on the domestic scene, he was still the kingpin. And a lot of people didn't really, well, a lot of people didn't think I'd beat Charlie. And also, I don't really think a lot of people liked the fact that I beat Charlie. I made a lot of enemies after that fight. Because Charlie, yeah, after that fight, Charlie was like, he was like um, Champagne Charlie. Everybody loved him. He was like the darling of, of British boxing at that point. 
he was a real big name in the world of, of, of British sp uh, sport, at least. And every, everybody loved him. So a lot of the press had written me off. And a lot, a lot of the press had hoped that I'd get beat because he was still this, you know, larger than life kind of character. Uh, no, not character. He wasn't cocky or big-headed or anything like that. But he was just a lovely, you know, real cockney, East End, Stepney kind of boy. And um, But unbeknownst to Charlie, Mickey had had me in America sparring. And when I say sparring, I don't mean – this is when I learned a lot about proper sparring. I was getting some real – um, I, I don't want to use the word murderous because I wasn't getting murdered, but it was like you had to, you had to fight. You had to, you know, I, 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 I had one guy called Juan Muriel, this Puerto Rican dude, and he used to handle me and he used to mimic Charlie Magwitch's style. And he, this guy gave me life and death. I'm not joking. It was just because every time I spied him, I, it was like a proper fight. It was like a proper contest. But when I realised, when I, when I, once my brother made me realise that my tactics were wrong, that I shouldn't try to fight the guy, I should try to box the guy. I just flipped the script on him. Do you see what I mean? Because a good boxer will beat a fighter 10 times out of 10, not nine times out of 10. So instead of trying to fight the guy at his own game, I started to box him more. I'm not saying I got, I didn't get the better of him, but I could hold my own now. Do you see what I mean? And that was enough for me because this guy was a fully fledged lightweight at the time. And, um, you know, I was boxing at flyweight. So there's, a, there's over a stone difference there. Do you see what I mean? So, um, yeah, and now I'm starting to hold my own with him, just boxing, not fighting, I'm boxing him. And I'm starting, and, and then my confidence starts to grow because now I'm not going home from the gym, battered, bruised, heads down, feeling sorry for myself. I'm starting to think, you know what, I'm actually doing all right here. Yeah? So, by the time the Magri fight came around, I was very quietly confident because all I kept saying, all Daddy kept saying to me was, there's nothing you haven't seen already inspiring. There's nothing, there's no pressure you can be put under that you haven't already been put under inspiring. Do you see what I mean? The realisation now is, is that it's at Wembley Arena. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people cheering for him because he's quite a popular guy, ABCD. But he said, you just block all that out. You go in there and you just you do your job. Do you see what I mean? You do what you're trained to do. And when I used to do my little tick box, ask myself all the relevant questions, you know, have I run in the morning? Have I gone to bed early? Um, have I disdain for all the things I love, like sex and, yeah, um, have I gone out? No. So once you do your tick box and you know everything's all ticked off, you get an inner confidence and an inner peace. Do you see what I mean? So I got into that fight, made the weight, and um, that was what I call my coming-of-age fight because Car Charlie was this very experienced, very hard-punching, um, you know, European-British champion – European champion, I was the British champion. So we're fighting for my British title and his European title. Mm -hmm. So and this was my this was my sort of like I say, my coming of age fight. And my our tactics were, you know, I just I boxed with him for the first couple of rounds, then I trade a little bit, then I, I just kind of keep switching on him. Box fighting almost for the whole of the fight though. Because Charlie's only got one gear. Yeah, he's got He's got one gear and he's got one stop. Charlie's just like, he's just on you, full stop. And he's just on you and he just puts it on you and he just lets you know what he's all about. But when he starts hitting thin air, you get frustrated. When he starts hitting just elbow shoulders and I'm rolling with the punches, you get frustrated. Now Charlie's not catching me cleanly. He's getting a lot more frustrated. Now he starts to leave himself open. Now I've always been quite a good punch picker. So I'm picking single shots. I'm not throwing combinations yet. I'm just picking out single shots to do the damage. And the left hook to the body and the left hook up top was... I, I remember seeing yeah. a lot of left hooks to the body. Yeah, yeah. So, well. yeah, so 
Charlie being a little bit smaller than me, I had to get down a little bit lower to get the shot right underneath the elbow. But I wasn't really worried about that because all I was thinking about was just fighting my game and doing what I had to do. So and I knew he'd probably never been hit with a body shot before. I'd, I've been hit with plenty in my time, and I, I know what it is to get hit with a really hard shot, body shot. Body shots can kill you in actual fact. But anyway, so um, in the early stages of the, of the fight, I'm catching them with really nice uppercuts and really nice jabs because that's my best shot. And um, But then once I switch tact on him, he doesn't really know what's going on. Do you see what I mean? If you watch the fight closely, once I start hitting him with body shots, it's like shock horror. Yeah, he can't believe it. Yeah, and I get him. Fight yesterday, and I remember you okay. the body, and you could tell straight away there was a, a change in them little battles. See, when you were together yeah. in the other ring, you were starting yeah. to he was winning them battles. You could tell that yeah. it was changing. Yeah, and he gets a bit disheartened, mm-hmm. and now I start now I start stepping off on him and letting him actually walk onto the shots, which increases your power, and um, and then he kind of folded. But just before he folded, I think he made a really sweet body shot. If you watch the, the final sort of body shot, the one that wins him and sends him back to the ropes, it's not a head shot. I do a double jab and a cross. He stumbles back. And as he stumbles back, I hit him into the body with the left hook. And then I hit him over the head with, with another hook. And then the cross, as you're talking about, and the fight's over. Do you see what I mean? So now I'm British and European champion. And um, then I get like a world ranking. Now, my official world ranking, I think, I think they put me in at something like number 13. So I rang the um, Boxing News who, who, showed, who put the world ratings in. And at that time, there was a guy called Harry Mullen. He was the uh, chief editor of that paper. And I rang him up. I said, Harry, I said, you put me in the world rankings at number 13, saying it's not right. And he went, Duke, he said, when you win the European title, he said, you get an automatic rating of uh, like top 15, I think it was then. And I was like, nah. And I put the phone down. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I put the phone down and I rang my brother Dudley and he came straight to, he came straight home and he said to me, he said to me, little man, he went, um, he went, you're all right. I went, no, nah. I said, it's got to be wrong. I said, I'm not ready. He said, you're all right. And do you know what? We, when I say, boy, I, I, can't, I can't even explain the emotion because I've gone from being a nothing and a nobody as an amateur to being a something and a somebody as a professional fighter. Do you see what I mean? And to get a world ranking for me, to be world ranked. Listen, I'm a small black kid from Croydon. To get a world ranking, come on. That was, listen, that was, that was, that was, to me, that was really special. It really was. I couldn't, I couldn't actually believe I was world ranked. And then I started creeping up the ratings because I, I, I went to, I was still European champion. I gave up the British title. I was still European champions. And then I went to defend the European title in, in Italy, as I said earlier, against uh, Jim Piano Pinna, I beat him, and that took me up to something like number five. And I'm like, I just kept creeping up because I just wanted to, all I wanted to do was just see how far I could get up. And then the next thing I knew, I turned around, now I'm ranked like WBC number one. And I'm like, this is just, I, <laughs> I couldn't, I could sometimes even now, I think, because I can remember the emotions that I felt, I still can't quite believe it because I've beaten all of these guys. And I've got an official, like, number one world ranking. So at the, to- at the time, um, the champion was a guy called Sochi Talada. We was chasing him. And because um, he beat Charlie Magri and he was, like, the obvious choice. But he wouldn't come over here and fight me. 
Um, being, coming from Thailand, he'd never made the weight, and I'd have got him, I think. That's why they didn't want to come over. He was the same height as me, five foot seven, and he would have struggled to make the weight because he's always fought in the Philippines in his backyard or, or Thailand where it's hot, so they can make weight. But Mickey Duff would have got him over in like October, November time when it had been cold <laughs> and he used to the yeah, he used to dark weather and <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, we'd have got him. I think anyway, listen. But that fight didn't happen. I was I was world ranked number one for about 12 months and the fight didn't materialise. And then um then Mickey Duff switched his attentions to the IBF, to Rolando Bohol, mm-hmm. and they came for the money. But yeah, Bohol came over for the money, he got a, a decent payday, and um but under fight as well. Okay, so with in the Boho fight, he um Mickey Duff really done a number on him. He did. Because he'd never boxed outside the Philippines. So everything I just explained to you about the other guy, he was experiencing now. He came over in, in October, it's cold, it's raining. He's not used to fighting in front of you know a British crowd. It's at the um the Wembley Conference Centre. Um, October the 5th 1988 and I trained so hard for that fight because all Duddy kept saying to me was leave no stone unturned he said to me if you get beat he said to me don't wake up the next mate the next morning saying to yourself I could have done this or I should have done that he said leave no stone unturned so I just I got myself in tremendous shape Mickey Duff got me tremendous sparring um, I made weight for the fight really well. Um, I was strong. And the, the IBF had brought in the day before weighing in. You could weigh in the day before. So we weighed in at six o'clock the evening before. So then I set my clock every four hours so I could eat. Like roast dinner, a bit of rice and peas. Uh, whatever I fancied, I just eat. Because I, I wasn't one of these for, um, oh, just having pasta and chicken and, you know, just drinking water and lit and that. I just, you know, my coach sent me, Mackenzie, a happy fighter is a good fighter. So if your belly's full and you're happy, you're going to fight, you're going to perform. And equally, though, I'd stop eating, say, from about five o'clock on the day of a fight, because you won't fight until 11 o'clock that night, and my stomach would be, would be nice and flat going into the ring. And I just used to break fights down. I used to break fights down into thirds. First three rounds, what was I going to do? Three to six, what was I going to do? Six to nine, how are you feeling? Nine to 12, you just break it down into thirds. That's how I was to fight and pace myself in fights. Every fight I ever had, every 12-round fight I, I ever had, that's how I was to break it down in thirds. It's easier that way. I can digest it because I know if, I'm, if, I, if I've lost three rounds, then you've got another three rounds to get back into the fight. And if you've got another six to go, that means you've got every chance of winning. But if you're three rounds down going into the ninth round, you, the fight's gone. You know what I mean? And even mentally, help you mentally because you're just like, okay, three round, that's the first phase and then yeah. in second and then third. So it's a good way of looking at it, thinking about it. Just mentally, it, it helps you survive. Like, just, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't weigh you down that much. No. Nah. And with, with the bow hole fight as well, I had a bit of height on him because he was about 5'5", five, five, I think, or 5'4 and a half or whatever. I'm 5'7". And so I had a lot of height on him. And um, so I'm just breaking it down. So I'm prepared to lose the first two or three rounds. In my mind, I'm prepared to lose. If you watch the fight closely, you'll see for the first two rounds, all I do is nip and tuck. I'm just standing in the fight. I'm not interested in getting involved because that's when he's going to be his most strongest. I'm not involved. I'm not involved. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to walk onto one or anything like that. But then at the end of the at the end of the second round, sorry, going into the beginning of the third round, 
I, all I say to myself is, I've had enough, I've had enough for running. I've got, I've, got, I've got a test in. And Mickey Dufford said to me, put it on him, see what he's got. Let's just see what he's got. And at the, in the third round, I plant my feet and I throw a couple of hard shots, which he walked onto. And then he throws a couple back. And I think to myself, yeah, that ain't too bad. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking, that ain't too bad. But I don't want to take another one. If you watch the fight, I ride a lot of his shots. He's, as he's throwing the shot, I'm riding away from it. I'm ducking underneath it. I'm stepping off it just to take the sting out of it. But where I've got a slightly longer reach, he's still on the end of my shots. So, um, like I say, I lose the first two rounds, I think, quite clearly. I win the third round because I'm, I'm starting to trade with him a little bit now. Fourth round, I think I might have just nicked it. Fifth round, I'm saying to myself, I'm in the fight now. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no more of this, you know, I can't do this or I can't do that. I've just got to go and do it. Do you see what I mean? So I'm taking this fight now. I'm not taking it like in thirds now. I'm taking the fight from the sixth round onwards. I'm taking the fight round by round. Do you see what I mean? So I'm saying to myself, going out for the sixth round, I'm saying to myself, I've got to win this round, the sixth round. Seventh round, I've got to win this round. Eighth round, I say to myself, I've got, I need to have a little bit of a rest. How many rounds up are you? Are you two rounds up? Are you three rounds up? Are you one round up? I knew I was comfortably about two rounds up. So all I say to myself is I've got to revert, revert, revert back to type of the first of the of the opening of the fight, the first two rounds, and just stay in his pocket, make sure I don't get nailed, but I'm prepared to lose the 748 round, whichever round it was, because I know from round nine, it's all systems go, I'm going to be on top again. I lose the eighth round, but then you see from the ninth round, I'm starting to go to work now because I've got him in the end of this, I've got him in the end of my jab. I've got him exactly where I want him. And every time I hit him with a jab, you see it, his head goes back. He can't, I can't miss him at this point because he starts to tire. And as he starts to tire, my confidence just soars. And now I'm hitting him pretty much at will because everything I've worked on in the gym, the double jab, the crosses, the step-offs, the comeback, um, the body shots, everything's working. So every round, I'm now, now, now I'm saying to myself, round nine, round 10, round 11, round 12, I'm, certain counting, I'm, I'm doing like a minute countdown. I've got like a minute on, minute off, minute on, minute off in each of the rounds. And so I put it on him. At the end of the 10th round, you can quite clearly see, you see me say to my coach, what round is it? Because I don't even know what round it is. All I know is I'm winning the fight. I say to Colin, my coach said, what round is it? And he said to me, 10th round, Mackenzie, step on it. So I'm thinking to myself, I've only got six minutes. If I can get to the end of this fight, A, I've done myself proud. B, I might even have a chance of winning it. And C, God, if I do win it, well... Well, listen, so I've stepped on the gas. I'm putting everything in there because I'm hitting him with everything. And again, at the end of the at the end of the, the length round, I hit him with a, I hit him with a, such a beautiful body shot. I hit him with, it's almost like a right, it's almost like a right uppercut going underneath his left elbow. And I can hear him go, he winces like that. And then I, I do it again, and then I hit him with a left hook, and then with, with a cross, and he just folds. He just folds, he just he just went over. And what was that? I, uh, I, I can't even now. I can't even put it into words. I can't put it into words because um, all I can say is I was an emotional wreck for about a month. And if you watch the whole of that fight, I don't know if they still show it on YouTube. But if you watch the whole of the fight, at the end of that fight, when everybody's gone home and all the chairs are being taken down, there's just me and Dudley stood in that ring crying uncontrollably crying just cannot I can't believe what's happened I cannot believe I'm like world champion I can't I, but you see here's the thing about Dudley this is what made Dudley so special 
When I won, he won with me. When I lost, he lost with me. So remember I said to you at the beginning of the fight, when I cried tears of joy when I was winning, my brother cried with me. It was, it was like we were more than brothers. We were like twins. Do you see what I mean? Dudley knew me better than I knew myself. And like, I've never had a relationship like that with anybody in my life. I've got five other brothers who I love dearly, but Dudley knew me better than I knew myself. So we cried and for every fight I ever had in Great Britain and all up down the country, Dudley'd always take me to fights and drive me home again. And we'd always laugh going to fights and cry coming home. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. Was Dudley with you when you first at that, uh, when you went up to Mickey Duff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, not into the office. That day and the day you won your, your title. That's Dudley, Listen, Dudley was with me from day one. Everywhere I was, he would be. We would, like I say, he was like my shadow and vice versa because Dudley was everything I wanted to be as an amateur boxer. Dudley would, Dudley, like I say, Dudley would just, sometimes it was like he was winning fights for fun in the amateurs. He wasn't. He worked. Dudley had a six-pack at like 14, 15. Do you know what I mean? Good looking, looked like Denzel Washington, carried himself well. You know, Daddy was always smart. Do you know what I mean? Daddy could, Daddy could really fight. I promise you. Ask anybody from my generation or the next one up if, about Daddy McKenzie, and they'll tell you. Out of the four of my brothers, Daddy was, Daddy was the real special one. He really was. And um, we, you know, like I say, I've never had a relationship like that with another man before because he knew me better than I knew myself. And you know, there were plenty of times in my life where I, just, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to see him because I had to share my joy with him. Do you see what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't even so much about, it wasn't even so much about winning. He, he was my brother. And when I cried genuine tears, it, I'd be howling. My brother would be, he'd be crying uncontrollably. I'd have to put my arm around him sometimes. Do you see what I mean? Calm him down. But equally, we had, we had some amazing highs, uh, like I say, in, in boxing. And I, I can't, I can't even really um, put it into words. Like I say, because I, I lost my brother in 95 and it's something I live with every day and I'll never get over it. Not because I don't want to get over it. It's just that he's a part of me. And it's almost like if, if, if there was no, listen, if there was no buddy, there'd be no me. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's as black and white as that. So all that I am and all that I'll ever be, I, I really owe to him. We had that, we had that, we had that mad, mad, mad. And another thing about Dudley, you see, I've just won the world title. I'm walking back to the changing room. He's had his arm around me. We're both crying. And he sort of went to me. <laughs> he went to me. I never get. He was crying. He said to me, he said to me, dude, he said to me, it's not going to last. He said to me, enjoy tonight. We're going to enjoy tonight. You know, we'll go on. We'll celebrate. Because I, like, I love jelly, like strawberry jelly with like tin fruit in it. And that. And I, my brother made me a massive one. Yeah, that was like a celebration, celebratory food. And then, you know, we'd go and we were just, we'd, we was out all night eating jelly and drinking Lucozade and just talking about what had just happened. But he said to me, it's not going to last. And I went to him, what the, you know, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm like, I'm world champion. Do you realise what we've just done? And I've just, I've just become like world champion. He said to me, little man, he said, it's not going to last. I said, all right. I said, all right, listen, all right. I wasn't even having it at that time anyway. So, um. But you see, my brother, he had, where I wear glasses, my brother, he wore like bifocals. It was like he had vision. He just knew I wasn't going to be strong at that weight for long. And he, he, he knew at some point, sooner rather than later, that's what was going to be my downfall. 
in that weight category. I'm five foot seven. A big flyweight at that time was about five foot four, maybe five foot five. I'm five foot seven. I was like Tommy. I was like the Tommy Hearns of the hitman of, of the earlier. I was going to say yeah. when I watched you, it was like it, there was it was it was like watching Tommy Hearns at flyweight. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's not. Yeah, I, listen, I really appreciate that. I'm, just, I'm not I'm not likening myself to the legend that is Tommy Hearns. You understand that? But all I'm saying is, for the height that I was and the reach that I had. Um, you know, I could. I had a lot of fun. Do you see what I mean? In the early days of my career, but then, so I beat Rolando Bohol. Then my first defence is made um, against a guy called Tony DeLuca, who was tailor made for me. This guy's he's tailor made for me. He fought with his face. Sadly, he's passed away, but um, he fought with his face. He's five foot four. Do you know what I mean about being a big flyweight and, and a small flyweight? He's only little, so he was tailor. He just come flying at me. And um, I'm defending it at the uh, Royal Albert Hall in uh, in Kensington. I'm topping the bill. It's a big night for me. Um, just before this fight, we had the, uh, the the pearly rail crash. I don't know if you remember it. It was a really bad rail crash, and oh, that was in my early. yeah, that was in my head a little bit um, in the in the lead up to the fight. I must admit. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there because I still won the fight. But like I say, Tony Dillon come flying at me. Found loads of shots and just walked onto some shots. And then Doctor got in the ring to check his cuts, Dr. Adrian Whiteson, and his cuts were quite severe over his eyes. I think he was cut quite badly twice, once over each eye, not once over the arm, once below the eye in the first couple of rounds. Because we had the really small eight ounce proper, you know, the Reyes gloves, the Reyes Cleto Reyes gloves. Yeah, but the the real the, the old fashioned type, the horsehair type, the ones that get wet, and when they get wet, they mold to your fit, they mold to your fist, and you can feel every knuckle in that glove. Anyway, I managed to um, secure a victory inside uh, four rounds, and um, but I'm struggling to make weight. I'm not going to lie, I was struggling to make weight, and then um, then I get matched. I win that fight, and then I get get matched against the guy called Dave McCauley, and. I have to say, um, unequivocally, I lost the fight, no doubt. And but and I, I was gone from the first round. You know, he, he was hurting me. He was hitting me body shots, and I was hurting that fight. But my only... Um, I can justify that, that loss. A, I knew I was weight trained, right? It's a fact. I was weight trained. Because if you look at my career and the fighters that I went on to beat in my career... Arguably, they were better than he was. I'm not slighting him, you understand. I'm just making a statement of fact. So he won the fight, and good luck to the guy, because he went on to become quite a good champion. I think he made three or four defences successfully, so he was quite a good champion. That was three or four than I ever made. However, so I lost that. Then I move up to bantamweight, and Mickey Duff always said to me, you make a better bantamweight than you would a flyweight. Mickey Duff used to say to me, um... You know, I should model my style on like Jeff Chandler, who was a brilliant WBA bantamweight world champion, five foot seven, long, rangy, um, strong. And um, yeah, I looked at him and I looked at a few other guys and I thought, you know, all right. So Dudley, Dudley convinced me to move to bantamweight. Now, because I was ready to quit after losing to McCauley because boxers weren't moving up through weight divisions, not in this country. It hadn't been done for over 100 odd years. And Dudley went to me, there's another belt out there for you, little man. You just got to go and get it. Simple as that. He just went, little man, there's another belt. He said, we're going to train. He said, we're going to get stronger. We're going to get better. He said, he said, all that you, all that you are, all that you have 
we can just put it all together now because you can eat what you want. And I'd always been told, if, you know, a happy fighter is a guy that can eat and drink. Now, I've never been able to eat what I wanted before. Listen, on, on the day before the fight, I'm having like a cooked breakfast. You know, the night before, I'm having like a, I'm having like a cooked meal. Now, I'm, I'm, used, I'm, used, I'm used to not having a roast dinner for like six weeks before a major title fight at flyweight. I'm used to, I'm used to living on rabbit food. Literally, just bread and water and a bit of salad and a bit of bold chicken and a little bit of cabbage and a little bit of this and that. And I'm used to having like one meal a day on a, on a serving plate. But now I'm having like proper roast dinners. I'm having my rice and peas. I'm getting all my goodness. And so going into the Gabby County, oh, do you know what? I forgot to tell you about the fight that made me. Sorry, sorry. I've got to backtrack a little bit. So my first fight at Bantamweight was against a guy called Thierry Jacob in France for the European Bantamweight title. Now, that fight made me. I'm telling you, that fight made me. I trained so hard for the fight. I'm strong. I'm eating what I want, blah, blah, blah. And all I'm saying to myself is, this guy's going to pay. I'm gonna, For every sacrifice I've made, he's going to pay. So for the first six rounds, I've come out. And if you've watched the fight, you see what I mean. We're, we're going at it. Every, every, fight, every punch I'm trying, I'm trying to knock him out with. Everything. I'm just trying to take his head off. But this guy's so smart. He, I learned so, He's just boxing with me. He tucks up. He's a southpaw. He tucks up. He just boxes with me. He's not letting it all out. He's just boxing with me. He ain't trying to win the rounds. He's just boxing with me. And he let me put everything I had into the first six rounds. The seventh round, there's a change of tactics. Drops his feet. He's hitting me in the shoulder. He's hitting me on the hip. He's hitting me around the back of the head. He's hitting me everywhere he can, except in the face. He's just, he's taking little bites out of me. He's wearing me down. But I didn't know this. Eighth round, I'm still trying to get in. I put everything in. Come at the end of the ninth round, he's hit me everywhere. He's punched me so many times. He's punched me, he's almost punched me to a standstill. I promise you, he's hit me and I've gone back and I'm thinking, oh my God. And I've, I'm, at the end, at the end, at the end of the tenth round, I kid you not, I'm ready to jack. I'm ready to quit. I've had enough because I'm hurting. When I, 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 there was blood in my urine for over a week after that fight. That's how badly this guy, he beat me like a dog, honestly. The fight was, that's what I call, that's my hardest fight. That's my, it's the hardest fight I ever had. I had 42 professional fights. I never boxed, I never boxed anybody remotely. Because again, we had the little gloves, the little Cleto Reyes gloves on. And he hit me, he he done a number on me. Honestly, he really done a number on me. The beauty of that fight was, though, the tactics that he used to beat me in that fight, I used in every fight I had thereafter. Do you see what I mean? Okay. Yeah. So here's the deal. Um, there used to be a program called Screen Sport. You won't remember this. It, um, it's one of the original sort of um, sports network stations. And I couldn't sleep one night. And I woke up. Gabby Canizales is on there, right? He's challenging a guy called Miguel Laura, who was, see what Nazim Hamid is like? Miguel Laura was that and more, I promise you. Miguel Laura, he was like one of these spaghetti western uh, type figures. He had this big old, big gringo moustache. He'd drop his hands, he'd do a little shuffle, he'd wind. He was beautiful. Now, Mickey, Mickey got me in a position where I could fight Laura. I had to go to Miami and fight Laura. Uh, Mickey, got, I was ranked number one to fight Laura at this point. And um, I just point blank refused. And Mickey went, what do, you, what do you mean you don't want to fight him? I'm like, nah, he's, this guy's all wrong for me. It just is. Because I'd seen, seen, seen him fight Laura. I'd seen him fight before. And then, like I said, I woke up one night and now Laura's fighting 
Gabby Canizales. Gabby Canizales took my place and got the fight, right? Canizales went over there and he destroyed Laura in two rounds. He knocked, watch the fight. I promise you, you need to watch this fight. Canizales knocks him out in two rounds. And I'm thinking, I can beat this guy. Do you want to know why? The reason I thought I couldn't beat Laura, because our style, stylistically, because we're both boxers, it would have been too much of a chess match for me. And I couldn't have beaten him. So, but Canizales is flat-footed. He had to have his feet on the floor, you know, little sort of Roberto Duran type, you know, hustling, bustling, fainting, trust to get me one shot. So I knew I, I knew I could beat him. So I rang Nicky Duff at three o'clock in the morning and I said, I said, mate, I said, it's Duke. He said, he said, what do you want, son? I said, mate, I said, I'm watching screen spot. I said, I've just seen Canizales. He said, Duke, he said, I'm watching the same fight. He said, I'm going to get him. Those were his very words. He said, I'm going to get him. When he said that, I put the phone down. This is three o'clock in the morning. That's when my training, I started training from that night. This is, yeah, this is four months before the fight's even made. I went out running. I started running from that point. So by the time we get to the fight, the fight's been made. Now, Gabby Canizales is coming over here to fight me on a Sunday night. It's midnight. It's at the Elephant Castle Leisure Centre. It's a Sunday night. But it's a sunny, it's a sunny, it's, it's, it's a warm evening because it's in the summertime. But... At the press conference, Canizales is saying to me, Mackenzie, um, I'm going to knock you out. Manny Stewart saying to me, Mackenzie, you're not strong enough. You can't beat my guy. Everybody around me is trash-talking me, rubbishing me, A, B, C, D. And the only thing I could say to Gabby Canizales was, I said to him, Gabby, listen, I've et, slept, walked, talked, drunk you for the last four months. I haven't been outside my front door unless I've been going to the gym or doing my morning run. I haven't had a sweet, I haven't had a Mars bar, I haven't had a can of Fanta pop. I said, all I've done is lived, ate, slept, drunk and walked you. I said, if you've missed one day's training, I said, I'll find you out. I said, because I, I don't cut corners. I said, I'm fit. I said, I'm ready to fight. I said, on the night, I said, the best man will win. That's all I could say. So when he was saying, I've never heard. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> listen, right then and there, at that point, I knew I had him. Do you want to know why? Because he took a big, deep breath. He swallowed hard. And he said, Mackenzie, he said to me, yeah, he said to me, you're a this and that. And I'm going to knock you out. He said, he's seen what I've done to Laura. He said, I'm going to knock you out. Now, and Dudley was standing behind me at this time. And Dudley said to me, just whispered in me. He said to me, he said to me, little man, he said, there's nothing to fear except fear itself. He said, don't fear this guy. He said, you can, he said, you can taste fear. He said, but you feed off it. Do you know what I mean? And right then and now I had to stand up and be counted, you see what I mean? Because he was like trash talking me and one thing and another. So I said to him, I said, if you miss one day's train, I said, I promise, I said, I promise you, I said, I'll find you out. I said, because I haven't missed That's a day. Good line, you know? Yeah, I said, I'm, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. I said, you know, I said, I said, I don't know what I said, I don't know what you're prepared to do in that ring on the night, but I said, I'm prepared to leave my soul in there. So it's on. And all I did, I just turned my back and I never looked at I never I never made eye contact with him again. Not even on fight day, I didn't make eye contact with him. There's no need because I knew what I had to do. Do you see what I mean? And if you watch the Canizales fight, after the, uh, you know, after he don't, he listen, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I know if I stand still, he's going to knock me out. So the plan was, if he threw one shot, I'm going to throw three. If he throws two, I'm going to throw five. If you watch the fight, anything he throws, I double or I treble it. Now, as I said to you before, my best shot is my jab. This is my this is this is this is the key. This is what did it for me. Watch the Magri fight. Watch the Min the Flynn fight. Watch uh, the the um, 
the Deluca fight, watch the Kalizali's fight, watch anybody that that, that I'm, I'm I'm beating and I'm and I'm on top against. My jab pretty much does. I really, I literally wrote that down. Your jab is is it's 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 one. It's a stiff jab. You can but you vary it up. It's like a really educated jab. Your jab yeah. is awesome. When I literally was saying to my friend, he was saying to me. No, I was speaking to my friend yesterday, and I said to him. Look at Duke McKenzie's jab. It's oh, thanks, Sam. You know, Mickey yeah, took yeah. me to it's funny that yeah, Mickey, 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 yeah, Mickey took me to um, Paris one year to go and watch Pernod Whitaker, yeah. and I watched Pernod Whitaker jab the head off um, Jose Luis Ramirez. Whitaker beat him with his jab alone, and then uh, Mickey took me to see Donald Curry against Colin Jones, and. Donald Curry beat the living daylights out of Colin Jones with his jab. It wasn't the cross. The cross busted his nose, all you know, well and good. But it was his jab, it was just beautiful. And where I learned to try and hold maintain my shape, I've learned it pretty much watching those those two guys. There's another guy I watched, but he came much later in my career. Um, one of the things I want to say is see, when I watch your fights, one thing I notice is guys really struggle to get into their rhythm with you. Because that jab just is disrupting everything. The jab, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's one thing. If you've got, yeah, if you've got movement with the jab, like if you're hitting and you're moving off the jab, you become what they call is a moving target, right? So if you're if you're fit enough, you can maintain it. And I used to pride myself on fitness. Like once I'd lost to Dave McCauley, my six mile runs went to eight mile runs. My eight mile runs went to ten mile runs. My ten mile runs then went to fifteen mile runs. Do you see what I mean? I up my game. I just up my game. So, like I say, when, when, I, when I'm getting ready for the Canizales fight, when I say to you, I never went over my front door unless I was going to the gym in the afternoon or I was going to do my run in the morning at like four, five, six o'clock, whatever time it was. Those were the only two times that front door was open. Do you see what I mean? So, and when you have to abstain from all the things you love, like I say, like um, I've got a real sweet tooth for like jelly and, and cheesecake and obviously... You know, there was no, you know, I wasn't having like sex or anything like that. And when I was so strong here, so when we get to the Canizales fight, I knew that God, you know, the only way he was going to beat me is by, by, by knocking me out. So I'm doing this fight round by round. I win the first round. I'm ready to go for the second round. I don't think I sit down after the first round because I just want to fight. I win the second round. I win the third round. I win the fourth round. I win the fifth round. And every round is the same thing because I know I know I know what he's got. I know he's he's looking for one shot predominantly, and that's just the, you know the big left hook or the right hand because that's all he really had. He was very similar in stature and style to somebody like a Jeff Lacey. You know Jeff Jeff left hook Lacey that lost to the great Joe Calzaghe. Yeah, um, he was very similar to that, looking for the one shot. So every time I hit him, I move. I hit him and I move because he's got to adjust. And every time I adjust. I hit him again. He adjusts to hit me. I get him again. And it's like it's like a wake-up call every time. And then I start putting little combinations together. But the one thing I have to do is not get carried away or cocky or get drawn in because I know I'm maybe four, five, six, seven rounds ahead. And there were several times in the fight when Mickey says to me, step on the gas. This really pushed this guy. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And that's what Colin, my coach, said to me. Just keep, just keep, just keep hitting him. Just as long as you're hitting him, it don't matter where you're hitting him. As long as you're hitting him and you're not taking anything back. I mean, in truth to myself, I could have probably done 20 rounds that night because I, I was just so fit. And at the end of the fight, I'm only looking for one person. Once 
once the final bell's gone, I'm only looking for my brother to get into the ring because I knew and he knew, because I could only really hear his voice from outside the ring. I only had to look at him once to know what he was thinking. And if you watch us, once he's lifted me up, the fight is done. When they say to me, when they say, you know, and the new bantamweight champion of the world, that was like I just won the national lottery. It was like winning the pools because nobody gave me a chance. I think they totally wrote me off. All the, the papers, the boxing news, everybody had just written me off. I wasn't supposed to win that fight. It's great being an underdog, coming to life, pulling it out against arguably one of the best bantamweights, certainly of the modern age. And that's 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 my best performance, but not my hardest fight. Do you see what I mean? Can it... Um, Kenny's eyes is my best performance, but the Jacob fight, that's my hardest fight because that gave me the tools to beat Kenny's eyes. Do you see what I mean? It gave me the mental sort of strength to know because when I was ready to call it a day in the Jacob fight, when I got back to the corner after the 10th round and my head went down, Mickey Duff lifted my chin with one finger and he said to me, Mackenzie, because he knew what I was thinking, he lifted my chin with one finger. He said, Mackenzie said to me, if you quit, he said, you'll be eating your dinner by candlelight. He said to me, grit your teeth. He said to me, show some guts. He said to me, and fight. And that's exactly what I did in the Jacob fight. So when the Canis Ali's fight, even when I started to get a little bit tired and, you know, I started thinking, you know, I just said to myself, there's no way I'm going to lose this fight. There's no way I'm slowing down. And if you watch the fight, I get a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker. And if you watch the last round, I start the last round exactly like I do the first round. I hit him with about a 10-punch combination. You'd have to slow it down. I'm not being flash or big-headed, but I hit him with a double jab, a straight right, a left uppercut, a right uppercut, a left hook and a straight right. And I and I catch him with every shot, Kenny Zali's. And his head's just going like that. And then I think I just back off and I let him come to me and I just tattoo him again with the jabs. And that's all I do pretty much for the, for the, for the whole of the 12 rounds. I'm just... Um, I had such a great time in that fight. It was just such a great experience for me that, um, like I say, that's my career, what I call a career's best performance from me. And um, it was like, um, like I say, now I'm world champion again. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm fit, I'm young. I can't wait to fight again. If Mickey Duff would have said you're fighting two weeks later, I'm ready to go because I'm, I'm match fit. Do you see what I mean? So... Um, I think six weeks after beating Canizales, I get the um, the Soto fight. And um, that was a hard fight because so Soto was a tough, he was young, he was hungry, he was a tough dude. And um, again, I'm quite an emotional guy. So my, my wife at the time, she was pregnant with our first child. And I, think, I just didn't want to be away from home, but I had to be because obviously I'm in training camp. But my mind was half at home and half in camp. And if you look at most fighters that lose world titles, um, the common denominator is a lot of these guys are either expectant fathers or they just had a child. And that's a real bad point. It's a bad thing, yeah. For any young guy coming up, you know, if you win a major title and you've got, a, and, you think, and then you start a family at the same time, it's a very, very difficult thing to hold it all together. Do you see what I mean? Anyway, I... I don't know, okay, Cesar Soto was a, a tough guy and um, he hounds me for 12 rounds. He's pressuring me, but he ain't going to beat me because I'm just, I'm fit. Do you see what I mean? And if you watch that fight, again, the jab wins the fight. My jab wins me the fight. I'm just on it. Do you see what I mean? From the first round to the last round, he's still eating jabs at the end of the fight. Do you see what I mean? And, you know, 
he's pressuring me right enough. And he's obviously, you know, he's throwing lots of shots, but he's only hitting thin air quite a lot. He's hitting me on the shoulders. Nothing really, you never see my head get jerked back or I'm never hurt or anything like that. And I just keep hitting him and tattooing him and hitting him again and tattooing him and just keep left leaving him behind. Because a lot of Mexican fighters are flat-footed. You know what I mean? They don't have good footwork. They're good at getting into close quarter and infighting, but they're not the greatest boxers. Do you see what I mean? So I, I mastered my craft. And that's what I beat nine out of 10 of my opponents with. It wasn't because I was physically stronger it was just my superior boxing and um just just sort of my work ethic really because if I didn't have a, if my plan A wasn't working I could have a plan B if plan B wasn't working I could switch to plan C do you see what I mean there was always another style I could try and adapt to do you see what I mean except I never wanted to fight their fight do you see what I mean so sorry to sorry Chandler no you, the, your story is is awesome from start to uh, start to the end. But one thing I want to ask you is, when you're talking about meeting, I'm going to take you way back to the beginning now. When you talk about waiting for Mickey Duff on the bench and turning up yeah. to the office, yeah. Did you was your did you want to become champion? Was that your goal? I, ne- I never, I never, I never turned professional to become British or a European or a world champion. I was unemployed, as I said at the beginning of this 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 whole. Uh, interview, I was unemployed. When I turned pro, it was simply to make a living. Do you see what I mean? This is what I mean about luck and being in the right place at the right time. Let's just suppose for one minute I hadn't met Mickey Duff. Let's just suppose I'd have met a different manager. And bearing in mind, nobody at that time had a whole stable of world champions or British or European champions. There wasn't anybody of of that time. Sure, you've got Frank Warren now, You've got um, Eddie Hearn now. You know, these guys know what they're doing as promoters and and, and managers. Uh, Warren's a great promoter and a manager. But they couldn't have done with me at that time what Mickey Duff did with me. And if I hadn't have had one of the major players in the, in the game, that means I would, have had to, I would have had to have had a second division manager. And I know, for, speaking from experience, what a lesser manager would have done to my career. They would have had to have take chances with me when I wasn't ready for that chance. So my, my, my confidence would have got shattered early. My O would have gone early and you might not be talking to a three-time world champion now. So like I say, in, in, in retrospect, when, you look, when, you, when I look back on it, nobody could have done with me what Mickey Duff did when I first turned pro in 1982. And um, he was, and I don't use this word loosely, he was a genius. He really was. Mickey Duff was an absolute genius. Uh, at matchmaking and just knowing me as a person. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people badmouth. No, I haven't heard a lot of people. That's a lie. I haven't heard a lot of people badmouth Mickey Duff, but I've heard some people have not very favourable things to say about him. But that's because they didn't, they don't know him the way that I know him. And I've also seen Mickey Duff with other world champions that he's had in the past. I'm not going to name names, but Mickey Duff's had some really big world champions, British world champions. And I've seen Mickey Duff and these world champions have stand-up screaming matches. And I mean, you know, not where it comes to blows, but I mean, where they've just been shouting at one another. And I'm like, I said to him once when I saw it with my own eyes, I went, Mickey, I said, what was all that about? And Mickey said to me very calmly, he said to me, there's nothing in a contract that says we have to like one another. He said, it's purely business. And from that point there and then, I totally understood what he meant. You don't have to like somebody to do business with them, but you're going to do business because it's going to be profitable for you. Do you see what I mean? And I understood. I understood exactly what he meant right there and then. And then 
I had a different relationship with Mickey Duff. We used to, I used to have like a nickname for Mickey Duff, which I won't say on air now because it's not, when I look back on it now, it's probably not, it's not, it's not very nice. But he had, he had a really bad nickname for me, which included a few swear words. Do you see what I mean? But that's just how we were. We had a, we had a really good, we had a really, you know, he, he, when we was in America, he'd look after me. I mean, really look after me. He'd make sure I was like fed. We was always in, you know, really decent hotels. You'd always make sure I was at the gym and, you know, I was always like in camp with the rest of the boys and, um, you know, give me like pocket money. You know what I mean? Like two, three hundred dollars every week. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't need it because I wasn't going out spending it on, you know, but he just made sure I had money in my pocket. Or if I, anything I needed, he just made sure. But um, to my detriment, to my detriment, yeah, I'd say that, give me 200 quid, give me 300 quid, give me 500 quid and I'll go off like to the stock machines and spend it in there. Do you see what I mean? Then after after my fights, he'd say, right, dude, you had five hundred dollars there, you had you had a thousand dollars there, you had two hundred dollars there, and it, and it, I like to pay it back. But that taught me a very valuable lesson, and I stopped borrowing money off of him after about my tenth fight or ish. Yeah, but after about ten fights, I stopped borrowing. <laughs> I stopped borrowing money with Mickey Duff, you know. But he was uh, he, Mickey Duff got me an accountant from the minute I turned professional. I had a, an accountant called Fisher Sassoon and Marks, a guy called Milton Marks was my accountant. So I was always up to date paying my tax and um, I never got behind. I never finished boxing where, you know, I had a tax man, a bundle of money. I paid everything as I was going along. Everything was fine in that department. But again, that's Mickey Duff looking after me. Do you see what I mean? I didn't know. I, t- I didn't even know what an accountant was. I couldn't even spell account then as a 19-year-old. Do you see what I mean? I didn't know I had to put a percentage of my money away after every fight and save it because one day you know the taxman's going to come along looking for his money so um now he he, um, he looked after me we had, i think we had quite a not i wouldn't say a unique relationship because i know several other fighters who speak very favorably of him but i also know just as many that, that don't you know and that for me is a little bit sad because when mickey duff died um there was only one other boxer that i recognized at his funeral, which I consider to be really sad, considering he had 19 world champions. To me, that's quite heartbreaking. But, you know, listen, people have got their reasons for not going. You know, some live in other countries and one thing and another. So um, I can understand that. And I also know that um, other people that he was really fond with and, and they were fond of him, they would have had legitimate reasons for not going. It was easier for me to go because obviously I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm London-based. So I was always going to go. I was... There was I was never not going. Do you see what I mean? So um, you know, I had I had I had so many um, like I say. So I beat Cesar Soto, and I beat um, make another defense. I forget the kid's name now. Wilfredo Vargas. I beat a guy called Wilfredo Vargas. So I beat I beat Soto. Then I beat Wilfredo Vargas. Then I get a match with a guy called Rafael Delvey from Puerto Rico, and. Um, Right, so the only way I can describe that loss, because that was just totally against the grain and was never supposed to have happened. And um, so two weeks before the fight, I catch a really bad cold. I go to Mickey Duff's flat down the Edgeware Road on a Sunday Sunday night. It's 10 o'clock. I've knocked on his door at 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, Mick, I'm not well. Pull me out of the fight. I've got a cold. Dude, I can't do that. Why not, Mickey? This is the conversation we're having. Why not, Mickey? I've just sold the fight coast to coast to America, American television. This is like my sort of coming out fight. This is going to make me superstar. So now I'm ready to go. So by the time, I, by the time I, 
when I've got to his door, I knew exactly what I was going to say. I was going to come out of his flat and I, the fight was going to be postponed. I was going to fight him at a later date. But by the time I got into his flat, two hours later and I've come out of the flat, I'm talking about the bird, the bees, the stars and the trees. Mickey just, he, I'm not going to say he talked me into the fight. He, no, he didn't because he didn't twist my arm. And he, he never said, he never put a gun to me and said, you've got to take the fight. But he made me understand the importance of the fight. And he kind of made me think, he, he kind of alluded to this guy, this guy was nothing. He'd say, you know, dude, you, you're going to beat this guy. You know, we're going to, we're going to beat him. And then I had, a, I had a massive fight lined up after that fight. Um, in South Africa, I was due to go to South Africa to defend my world title against the guy there for, for a bucket load of money, money that I'd never even heard of before, never mind earned before. And um, but you know, like the wind blew. If you watch the fight, the Del Valle fight, the, the wind blows, and I'm gone. I don't even know what time of the day it is. Um, but to my to my detriment, um, I was taking an, an inhalant called Beaconese, and that had some kind of a, a, a substance in it. And it made me really lightheaded. So I'm not, again, it, it sounds like an excuse. Oh, yeah, you got a cold. Well, you know, a cold's not going to lose you a fight. But I wasn't right. That's the fact. I just, I just wasn't right. And the only way I can describe the the, 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 the Valier loss, it was a loss on the night, but I didn't cry when I got lost. I never cried on my way home or I wasn't really upset. I was upset because the money had gone. I was upset because of the expectation that was out there from the people that, that love me and know me. Oh, that upset me. But I knew that wasn't really me. And I knew it wasn't really me. And Dudley was more disappointed in me. And that hurt me more than the loss. Do you see what I mean? The fact that my big brother, who I looked up to, Dudley gave me a look of disdain, and I've never seen that before in his eyes. He looked at me as if to say, you know, what the, what, what, what have you just done? Do you see what I mean? And if you ever speak to my, if you had ever spoken to my brother prior to, 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 to anything we've ever done together, everything was we. We're going to win. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Everything we did, we did together. But it's the first time he ever said to me, "What have you done?" And I had to, I had to really. Um, I had to really examine my conscience, you know, because I knew it weren't me. So equally, though, Mickey felt guilty. I know he did because after every fight I ever had, Mickey'd always come back to the changing room with me, make sure I was okay, make sure I was obviously going with my brother, and he'd have, a, he'd have, a, he'd have a, you know, he'd go to the toilet, he'd have a shave, and he was do to see later. I'm gone, and he was he was gone. He'd never hang around for like like. A, press conference or anything like that. Mickey Jeff was just good. He was like an invisible man after fights. He's just gone. But he sat with me after that fight. He put his arm around my shoulder and he sat with me for about a good hour. And he knew it weren't me. And, I, and he knew perhaps that he'd made the wrong decision in allowing me to go through with the fight or at least, you know, making me think that everything was going to be okay. So we had that. And then... But I wasn't disappointed for too long, and let me tell you for why. So about a week after that fight, Mickey rang me. He said to me, "Do he said whatever I do, he said I'm going to bring you back. He said I don't care what it costs. He said I don't care what it takes. I'm going to bring you back." Then a few days after that, he rang me again, and he went to me, "Duke," he said to me, "I got you a world title fight." He said, "He said we're moving up." Yeah, he said, "He said we're moving up, super bantamweight." He said, "You're going to fight Jesse Benavidez now." So I started rummaging around in my tapes and I found, and he sent me a tape, Mickey Duff sent me a tape with Benavides. And Benavides had just beaten a guy called Jesus Salud, 
it was this really hard punching um, guy from somewhere like um, somewhere like you've never heard before, like Miami or um, somewhere like uh, one of these like exotic islands, like um, where, like where do they wear the grass skirts? You know, they do like the hula hoop and all. Hawaii. My, where? Hawaii. Sorry, Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, that's it. He was from Hawaii. They called him the Hawaiian Punch. Right now, this guy was a real good puncher, and I think he was a southpaw as well. But Benavides goes over and done a done number on him. But Benavides is a southpaw, and I've always liked southpaws. And Mickey went, This guy's suited down to the ground, he's a southpaw, you know, we can get him over here. And um, so I started doing a bit of research on Benavides at this time. He then lost once early in his career. Manny Stewart trained him at the Cronk Gym, uh, Manny managed him as well. And Benavides, he, they just voted him like ring fighter of the month. He was on a roll. Yeah, he was on a roll. He was considered the best out of the four, the four current champions at that time. And now I'm thinking to myself, they're trying to tuck me up. This, you know, this, this, I'm thinking, they're trying to tuck me up because I can't, I can't win this fight. But then Dudley called me and Dudley went to me, what are you talking about? He said, the, we said, we won it. We, he said, don't. He said, this guy's Taylor made for you. I can't even believe you're questioning it. And as soon as he said that, as soon as he said, we're going to win, Dudley used to fill me like with confidence. I used to think like I was walking on air. And um, so again, I just got myself ready physically because Dudley did the mental side. Colin did the physical side, the training. And Mickey Duff did, did more sort of confidence building with me, just being Mickey Duff, do you see what I mean? Like Mickey Duff would come down to Thomas and Beckett and watch me train. Mickey Duff wouldn't go and watch tra- these fighters in the, the train in the gym. He just didn't do it as a rule. But it, several times he'd come down and watch me work out. And that gave me confidence. And then once I'd actually met Manny Stewart and, Ken, and Kenny Zales, uh, uh, sorry, and Benavides and, uh, and, his, and his coach, um, I just thought, you know, the difference between me and Benavides on fight night was I, I approached that fight like it was the last time I was ever going to fight. This fight for me, the Benavides fight was like the last time I was going to get in the ring. I was never going to, you know, this, you know, if I, if I won, obviously my fight goes on, but if I lose, it's all over. So I'm saying to myself, it's all or nothing, dude. You just got to do what you do. And if you watch that fight, it's not the most, it's not the tidiest fight you'll ever see. It's not the most clinical performance that I ever that I've ever had. But I think out of all of my 42 fights, it's probably it's probably the grittiest fight I ever had. Now I'm gonna um, which I, I alluded to the, the Jacob fight earlier. In the in the in the Benavides fight, it's very similar to the to the Jacob fight. Another southpaw um getting hit cleanly with shots because he's catching on the blind side a little bit, but I have to grit my teeth. I have to weather the storm. If you watch the fight, this is how I scored the fight. Going into the um, going into the ninth round, this is how I scored the fight. Going into the ninth round, I'm a round down with three rounds to go. Mm-hmm. I win the tenth round, so there's two rounds to go. The fight's level. If you watch the fight at the beginning of the, I think at the beginning of the, no, I win the eleventh round. Just about, just through, just through my jab, I win the 11th round. Then at the beginning of the 12th round, you see quite clearly, I throw a jab, I throw a cross and a hook, but my foot is behind his foot. Benavides trips over. The referee gives him a standing count. 
Now, the last round's a 10-8 round to me. Yeah, it's a 10-8 round to me. And um, now I'm a round down. So I'm a round up going into the last round. Do you see what I mean? By, 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 by virtue of the, of, the, of, the, of the accident, of the trip. So in my mind, I'm saying to myself, all I've got to do is win this last round to maybe even squeak a draw. And if I can get a draw, that means I might get a majority decision. Hometown, do you see what I mean? Then when they say it's a unanimous decision, I'm thinking, nah, surely not. Unanimous decision. One of the judges gave it to me by eight rounds. I don't know what he was drinking, but I'm glad I would have bought him another pint of that after the fight. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. But I win that one. And now like I'm a three-weight world champion. And this is another reason why I've got so much love and respect for Mickey Duff. Because, um, you know, after doing like research on one thing and another, I realised that... Um, See, Bob, was, Bob Fitzsimmons was the first three-weight world champion from this side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. and But what he had achieved hadn't been done for something like 110 years. It's something stupid. And when I start putting things into, con- into context, and when I see it in the actual script, and I think it was like, wow, I've actually achieved something which hasn't been done for so long. And, you know, people say to me, you know, I think because I hear it quite often, quote, it must have been easy. I think, well, if it's that easy... How comes uh, there's only, I'm only one of now that's three people that's ever done it in modern British boxing? It can't be that easy. So uh, this made me extremely proud. And um, I'm one of the, I think, probably few uh, boxers that really have, I've got out this sport, I think, the way I went into it. I didn't go into it with any, any, any illusions. I've come out with it more than I could have ever dreamt of. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a highly decorated athlete. I just think to myself, I'm blessed because, you know, I've got all my faculties. Um, I don't really look too much like a boxer. Um, I've got a little bit of an eye infection at the moment, but um, that's through cutting the trees in my garden. I've got a bit of a twig in it. Yeah, messing about with my dog. And so I've got so much to be grateful for. And I just think to myself, you know, I feel sorry for a lot of these, a lot of other boxers, I'm not going to name names, that have made multi, multi-million paydays, have multi-million pound paydays, but they've had all kinds of problems, both inside and outside of the ring. And I really feel sorry for them. I really do. And I, would, I really wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy because I know the highs that boxing can give you, but equally the lows that it can give you. And it's, it, it is enough to send you off the deep end Unless you really value what you've got before you go into the sport, like I say, my earliest, my earliest memory of wanting to be a dad, I was 13 years old. This is long before you was born, right? So I, there used to be a program on the television called Soap. It was about this American family, the Tates and the Campbells. Now, I, I fell in love with this woman on the TV. Her name was Jessica. And uh, Jessica Tate, and I fell in love with this woman because her personality was just... She just had a she she just oozed confidence. Anything she did, she did it with confidence, but with a but with, with with a cheeky wink and a smile. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And my eldest daughter was called Jessica after this lady. Do you see what I mean? I I wanted to be a dad from the age of 13. And I always knew I, originally I wanted to have like a football team. I wanted to have like a family of like 10 or 15 kids. I did. But sadly, it didn't work out between me and my first wife. We got two beautiful kids together. I've also got a son with somebody else. 
Uh, that's another story, but I've got a beautiful little son. So I've got, I've got three kids, uh, two girls and a boy. And I just, I just think to myself, just going back to my boxing career, um, all I really wanted to do was to give them a good life. And at the end of my career, I had a, I had a nice house, bought and paid for. I had a little bit of money in the bank, which was mine. I had a brand new car. My wife had a new car. Do you know what I mean? We had, a, you know, we were never rich, but we, had, you know, we were okay. By my standards, we were okay. And I just think to myself, I'm so lucky to have had the experiences that I've had to meet the people that I've had. Now, just going back a little bit in my career, but Mickey Duff, one of the times Mickey Duff took me to America, he took me to a gym called um, Johnny Tocco's gym in in. Um, where was Johnny Tocco? Johnny Tocco's was in Vegas. He had a little gym in downtown Vegas. And when Bozo Edwards was getting ready to fight Hector Camacho and Livingstone Bramble was getting ready to fight Edwin Rosario, they'd all train in this gym. So I was like a kid in a sweet shop. So Bozo Edwards would walk in, I'd watch him train. Three hours later, he'd walk out, Camacho would come in. Camacho would work out for three hours, he'd go out, Rosario would come in. Rosario would train three or four hours. He'd go out. Bramble would come in. Bramble would go out. Evander, Evander Holyfield would come in, train three or four hours, go out. I was there all night, all day. Holyfield would leave. Mike McCallum was there. Donald Curry was there. It was like a who's who of the boxing because all the big stars, Shirley Leonard made an appearance. Everybody would come in on fight day to watch the big fights. Do you see what I mean? And I was like a kid in a sweet shop. I was like, Pernal Whitaker was there. And I, I, when I, I met Sweet Pea before he was anything. I'm not just name dropping now, but he, and I, we were talking one day and um, he was telling me what he was going to do and how great he was going to be. And I was just, I, I was like in awe because I, 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 and Lou Duva was there and I used to listen to him bragging about Sweet Pea and telling everybody just how great this kid was. Do you see what I mean? And that's what first got my interest up to watch Sweet Pea Whitaker. So, but I, I never, I never had any illusions. I was never disillusioned. I never thought to myself one day, you know what? I went, at the end of my career, I'm going to be a two-time British champion, a European champion, a three-weight world champion. These things have just happened. My career just had a, it's had a domino effect, and was I don't really where, know. So I had to cut you off, dude. Was there a point where you, you was like, wait a minute, I'm gonna be? Do you know what I mean? Like even nah. going to, you never, it never hit nah. you. Like, I'm nah. really good at this. I'm winning world championships. I'm gonna win. Really... Nah. There was never that moment. No, nah. no. Nah. Oh. Nah. I've never, I've never woke up. I never woke up ever thinking to myself, it was a sure thing I was gonna win. And you know, I can honestly say, I can honestly say there's only one fight in the whole of my career, one fight where I genuinely believed genuinely believed I was world class where I genuinely believed I was world champion where I genuinely believed for that one night only no on, you know they say fighters have that night where they're untouchable or they have that fight that, 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 that makes their career for that, for that one night see the Canizales fight that's the one time in the whole of my career where I believed just for that one night that I was I, I believe I was untouchable. I wish I could have fought his brother on that night, Orlando Canizales. He was another one on my radar, but I never got to him. But he was a, he was an outstanding champion. But I, I I I genuinely believed on that night, on that one night when I beat Canizales, I really believed I could have beat anybody. You know, I was just um, I was walking on air for, for four months, four three four months before, certainly three months before the fight because I had to get I had to get fit. 
And the last three months of that fight, it was like every day I was walking on air. It's like every day I never went to the gym and had a bad day. I had a lot of lessons in the gym. He had a lot of lessons in the gym. You know, even when sparring wasn't going that well, I never used to go back and beat myself up. I say, well, I'm going back tomorrow. I'm just going to correct it. And I did. You see what I mean? And um, you can ask any of the guys that I sparred with over a period of time. Um, they'll all tell you. Um, you know, once I got my pipe working, once I got the jab working, um, I'd be a hard person to beat because I could do it all day long. But like I say, I, I can only really attribute that to some of the guys that I'd study. Now, some people might say um, they'll read a book or watch a video, but I'm reading a book, a video, and watching it at the same time. Do you see what I mean? Because back in the day, before you were born, there was a thing called Betamax. So you went from Betamax to VHS to what they call now DVDs and Blu-ray. But so back in the day, I'd, I'd get like a Betamax thing and. When you put the Betamax into the machine, it would always come up like crinkly and all scratchy and you'd have to wait till it loaded up and sort of crank itself up. But then I'd watch, like Kenny's Zani's, I, I watched him one night. I was so obsessed with watching him. I watched him from the minute I woke up to the minute I went to bed, quite literally. In, I must have watched him. I must have watched, in one day, I must have watched 100 rounds, but over and over and over again. Do you see what I mean? So it was almost as though when he, when I fought him, I knew what his next move was going to be. I just knew because I've watched it so many times. Did you enjoy doing that? Was doing that that you must have had joy in doing that, just figuring out your opponent. Yeah, I was, I was, I was borderline, I was borderline obsessive with my whole stature and my whole train of thought and the way that I was. I was borderline obsessive, and to put that in in a bigger sort of context for you, in the Canizales fight. When I came home from training camp, because I like to sleep in my own bed the night before a fight. So from the minute I put my key in the door, because my wife was home at this time, I put my key in the door. And the first thing I said to her, it wasn't, hello, darling, how are you? And I missed you, blah, blah, blah. What I said to her was, leave me alone. I said to her, just leave me alone. Go in the kitchen, go in the bedroom, go in the other room, go outside, leave me alone. Which she did, to her credit, she did. Then I went in the front room, right? And I put the TV on and I was watching a bit of TV. And... When I was ready to go to the toilet, go and have a pee, I'd count how many steps it took me from the sitting down to get to the top of the stairs and into the toilet because the toilet was upstairs. Then three or four hours later, when I, when I wanted to go to the toilet again, I would try and, and do it in less steps to try and conserve energy. I was, I was absolutely paranoid. Yeah, I was paranoid about conserving energy. I was paranoid about making weight. I was paranoid about being strong. Do you see what I mean? In every department. So that nobody can ever say to me, you know, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. And I'm convinced that 90% of the guys I beat in my career, I, I, I beat them on that paranoia. Because like I say, oh, with, with Canizales, he took days off in training, there's no doubt about it. Benavides must have, must have skipped training. Even Belinda Bohol, the flight he had over here, he's missed two days training. I'm still in the gym, do you see what I mean? So... Anybody that I've ever beaten in my career, I didn't beat because I was I was probably a harder puncher than them, but I, like I said, I was borderline psychotic in what I was doing. And when they used to switch off, I'd just be getting switched on. If they were getting tired at round eight, I'm ready to go to the next gear. Do you see what I mean? There was always, I always had like an upper hand. If it wasn't mentally, it was physically. So um, I'm, I'm probably one of the few uh, world champions you'll speak to that is, I'm totally... Happy in my own skin. Uh, I haven't got any demons in my head. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I never wish to make a comeback. 
Um, I never dreamed about coming back. I can't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't have hoped to have had a career like I've had. And if I came back at any point in my life, I certainly couldn't have a career like I've had. If I came back in another life, I couldn't have another life, another career like I've had. I couldn't. That's what I was going to ask. You look at your career. Uh, you started in 1882. Um, I did make an aborted return to boxing after winning all the championships and everything else, but quite clearly for the wrong reasons. Because at, at, at this point, I'd lost, I'd lost Dudley uh, to a suicide, and um, I was homeless at the time because uh, I got divorced and one thing and another. And boxing is all I've boxing's all I've ever known. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a milkman. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a driving instructor. I'm none of them. I'm not gifted with anything like them. I'm gifted with boxing. That's what I do. And um, it was a means to an end. And it was purely to try and, you know, nick a few quid. I wasn't really interested about winning anything. I knew I was well past my sell-by date. And then I boxed a guy called Santiago Rojas, who made me realise in about two minutes, 10 seconds of the first round, I quite clearly didn't have it anymore. And um, the film's not on tape, but I'll just, I'll play it out to you. So it's at, it's at the uh, Crystal Palace National Sports Centre. My brothers had got a promoter's licence at the time. They were promoting this show. So I'm playing to like a, a full house of Croydon people now. I'm in my hometown. So I'm happy. You know, I'm happy. I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to waste this guy and I'm going to move on. So I'm going up to the ring, and as I'm doing my ring walk, all the lights are on. I'm not used to that. I'm used to the lights being down, the fanfare being played, the big introduction, the whole fanfare. Anyway, the lights are on. And now I'm pulling out people's faces in the crowd. And I'm like, okay. Now I'm getting a bit closer. I'm just about to go up the steps. And I, I felt like a cold chill go down my spine. And I thought to myself, I'm not warmed up. But I went, you know what? I don't even have to be warmed up. He ain't going to last. I'm just going to get him out of there. And I got in there and this guy, he just went, but duff. And I just thought, that hurt. <laughs> I, then he done it again. And now my punches are falling short because I haven't prepared properly. My timing's off. My distances, everything, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. Then he catches me with another shot right on the chin. And in my mind, I just thought, Fuck this. I've had enough. And I sit down and I swear to God, as I'm looking at you now, I look at the referee and I think to myself, you can count to 100. I ain't getting up. I've had enough. And he counts, he takes up the count and that was it. The fight was over and that was me. I never boxed again. But I'm, in, in, in all honesty to myself, I knew it was over before I'd even got in there. It's been awesome talking to you, man. Jam, listen, 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 I'm not just saying this. I'm, listen, this is what I'm saying. To you. I've got time.